I thought I'd start with a question, and maybe I should just have given you this question and then go on with Miriam and the kids. That would have been quite good, just leave you to, disc- you know, like an exam paper. Here's a statement, discuss. <laughs> but I'll not do that. But I'm going to ask you a question, and that is, how would you define a miracle? Anybody like to have a, a go? How would you define a miracle? Something you can't believe has happened. Okay. Any other suggestions? Something unimaginable and unexplainable or inexplicable, depending on which, uh, which way you want to put it. Anything else? Something beyond our understanding. Something beyond our understanding. Yeah, okay. Right, three very good answers. Our theme, of course, is this morning discontent in the desert and miracle or something beyond our understanding certainly um, goes on in this story Um, those of you of a certain age may recognise this man I I hear from laughters a few folk do know who it is absolutely it may be very hard to believe now but back in the 1960s and early 1970s this guy appeared regularly on BBC television delivering popular lectures on the Bible that were considered accessible to the common man for those who don't know or have perhaps forgotten his name was Willie Barclay Professor of Divinity and Biblical Criticism at the University of Glasgow from 1963 until his retirement in 1978. He himself told the story of getting into a pub in Dumbarton. He was going to buy cigarettes because he was a heavy smoker. He threw several packets a day. He was going to Helensborough for some do, and he was dressed in evening wear. Not your, exactly your everyday wear in Dumbarton, even back then. So he goes into this pub in Dumbarton, fully dressed, and some shipyard workers started to stare at him. This curiosity, who's this guy in a pub in Dumbarton? And then one of them piped up, hey, you, mister, I can you. You're going fella Barclay that does the talks in the telly. I've got a question for you. Oh, to be able to get guys in pubs today to be able to say, I've got a question about the Bible. Sometimes happens, but not very often. The pub, he said, absolutely erupted. Everybody wanted to ask Willie Barclay a question. And when he finally had managed to deal with a number of them, but said he had to leave to get to this do, they lined up to shake his hand. And according to Willie, they apparently paid for his fags as well, which was (laughs) much to his liking. Such was the popularity of the man. Willie Barclay is considered to be one of the greatest communicators of the gospel 
in relatively modern times, and his daily study Bible series is still a very popular source of devotional reading for many. I don't know whether any of you use it or not. Others, however, consider some of his views on the Bible to be almost heretical. They were certainly liberal in interpretation. And some of his stories were a bit dubious. He never gives his sources. But there's no doubt that he could, as a, to, to paraphrase an advert, there's no doubt that he could reach the parts that other theologians couldn't reach. I've recently been reading his book, The Mind of Jesus, which he wrote back in 1960. It's laying, I've got to confess, on my bookshelf unopened for the best part of 30 years. And I thought I'd read it again before disposing of it, dear, since my wife's been at me to get rid of some books. (laughs) The ninth chapter of Barclay's book, The Mind of Jesus, is devoted to the miracles of Jesus. And I want to read a brief extract from it, as today we think not so much about the miracles of Jesus as such, but about the so-called miracles of the wilderness. Barclay writes, when we try to understand the miracles, we are met with an initial difficulty, the difficulty of defining a miracle. And he goes on to say, to define a miracle as something which is impossible is a quite inadequate definition. So take it for Willie Bartley, not for me. For who is to define the possible and the impossible in any way which is not relative to his own position in time and in progress? This, having cited as one example amongst many others, the perception of a Roman charioteer watching a machine travelling through the air faster than the speed of sound. Well, seeing that he lived in the age of Concord. But you get the point. What for one generation seems inexplicable may well be to other generations something they can understand. Now, that kind of popularism with these kind of stories, and there's umpteen of them you could give, but that kind of popularism certainly did not endear Willie Barclay to many of his contemporaries or even modern scholars, and he still has many critics. And I confess that I do at times scratch my head and think, Willie, how did you come to that conclusion? But at other times I have indeed been very grateful to him for his ability to unlock seemingly unfathomable passages. Without going into too much detail, since I don't possess his incredible communication skills, he goes on in this book, The Mind of Jesus, to identify three different classes of miracle, deriving from three different words used in the New Testament. These are dunamesis, works of power, teraz, something that produces wonder and amazement or astonishing occurrences. That one, however, is not actually used of the miracles of Jesus as such. But what is used is, sorry, Simeon, which means sign or significant event. Now, the text of St. John's Gospel tends to speak more of signs than of miracles. 
such as the turning of water into wine. Some people say it's a miracle, but John says it's a sign. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says it was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now, when we turn to the wilderness and to the experience of the Hebrews or children of Israel, we come across great signs which might well be considered to be works of power or something that produced wonder and amazement. But equally, they are significant events and certainly signs of God's presence and provision, what we might call his providence. Alec Mortier, late principal of Trinity College Bristol, in his exposition of the book of Exodus in the Bible Speaks Today series of commentaries, speaks of what he calls anticipatory providence. I'll say that again. Just give me a moment to take it in. Anticipatory providence. And he does so pointing to three great events, miracles, in the story of the wilderness wandering. These are the making unpalatable water drinkable, the feeding by manna and quails, and the providing of water from the rock, all part of chapters 15 to 17. We're only looking at supposedly 16 today. And he points to the fact that the miracle was largely in the timing to meet the needs of the Israelites. There's nothing terribly miraculous about the quails, because quails do fly by night when migrating in great numbers at certain times of the year. And certain kinds of insects called aphids do exude excess sugar absorbed by trees which fall as white globules to the ground. Yeah, I'm sure the Israelites didn't know that. Perhaps they were not that well up on nature. Maybe take a Mr. Attenborough or somebody to have um, elicited that for them. So it's more this um, anticipatory providence. Even the solitary tree used to cleanse the water, he points out, was placed at the pool of Mara years in advance by God just for the moment when it was needed, as indeed was the hidden spring below the rock, all part of God's anticipatory providence. What are we to make of this explanation of these miracles, these works of power, wonders, or signs? Well, let's recall the story then in a little more detail. The setting is, of course, the Sinai Desert. The people have left Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds. They've not yet reached Mount Horeb or Sinai, two different names for the same place, the place where they will receive the Ten Commandments. What they have experienced, however, thus far, is some difficulty in finding drinking water. We are told at the end of chapter 15 that they travelled through the desert of Shur for three days without finding water. And when they did, at a place called Marah, 
They found the water to be bitter tasting, quite unpalatable. And so they grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? But drink the water they did. For God instructed Moses how to make the water palatable. If you want to look into that a bit more, go to the end of chapter 15 and read it privately. But it's to do with that tree. Indeed, over the course of chapters 15 to 17, not once but twice, indeed, God intended, God provided them with drinking water during their journey as well as feeding them on manna and quails. He enables them to go on in the toughest of times. Now, you might have thought that following even that initial incident, they would have learned that God will provide, but of course that's not human nature, as Jesus well knew. Even hundreds of years later, Jesus had to say, as it's quoted up in the slide, do not be anxious about what you will eat and drink. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And so because human nature is what it is, fallen and distrustful of God, they continued to grumble against Moses and Aaron, and indirectly against God, since they were his appointed leaders. They were now one lunar month into their journey. And little could they have known that a further 39 years and 11 months would pass before not they, but their descendants would enter the promised land. They themselves, because of disobedience, would not enjoy that experience. They didn't know that. But even here, for a second time, they expressed their discontent in the desert. Now, I don't intend to spend any great time this morning on the story of the miraculous feeding by manna and quails. Margaret Payton, who read for us this morning, covered that story a few weeks ago in a children's talk. I think about three weeks ago, Margaret, was it? So hopefully if, if you remember that. But if you want a refresher, you can get it online. She spoke then, too, about the grumbling. So, instead, what I want to do this morning is draw attention to something else that Alec Moita wrote in his exposition of chapter 16 of the book of Exodus, something that touched me when I read it, and it does come under the heading, God's Purposeful Ways. Let me quote. More than anything else, what bothers us when trouble comes is our loss of a sense of purpose. We cannot see why these things are happening to us, and it is at this point that Exodus addresses us most forcibly. The God who created us and redeemed us never ceases to work out his purpose for the whole cosmos, for the church and for the in, every individual in Christ. This, he goes on to say, was how it was for the Exodus pilgrims 
and it remains true for us today, that nothing ever touches us except by God's determination and in accordance with his will and in order to achieve his purpose. Let me repeat that. Nothing ever touches us except by God's determination and in accordance with his will and in order to achieve his purpose. He is too great and he loves us too much to allow it to be otherwise. Now, of course, in the midst of trouble, that can be a hard thing to see. And for many, indeed, sometimes it's a teaching too hard to swallow. But Mocher goes on to outline the need for perseverance in the face of adversity, as well as the importance of trust in the Lord, trust that he is in charge and will not fail us. With reference to the first chapter of the epistle of James, which addresses the subject of trials and temptations, Mocher also talks of testing. Talks of how the people tested the Lord and how the Lord tested the people. And how only God stood the test. And yet, even so, his people can come through the time of testing by his grace and only by his grace. As a second reading today, however, I chose not the epistle of James, but the epistle or letter to the Hebrews, which in chapter 3 directly addresses the story of the discontented and rebellious Israelites in the desert and gives a lesson that we as Christians need to learn from their experience. The writer uses that old story as a sort of parable or illustration. He too teaches perseverance. Verse 14 of chapter 3. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. There are times in most folks' lives when their faith is tried by circumstance or perhaps by some doubt over what they once believed. And I think that's certainly true, not least during this period when the world is less accepting of the claims of Christ and when the church itself appears to be prepared to go the way of the world when old certainties are challenged. We need to remember that none of this comes from Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is believed that the letter to the Hebrews was written for people who maintained their Jewish ways whilst attracted to Christ, but who were under temptation 
to turn aside from him and to give up this new faith in the face of adversity. But according to the writer, that would be a fatal move. Only those who hold out their confidence in Christ to the end will be saved. Using as a teaching aid the fact that those who rebelled in the desert did not themselves enter the promised land. You get all the theologians this morning. Raymond Brown, former principal of Spurgeon's College London, in his exposition of the Hebrews' letter, writes, Passing through the Red Sea was fine, but once they came up against difficulties, they rebelled against God by opposing his servant. They doubted God's presence by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And concludes... This warning from the past would certainly not be lost on those Jewish Christians in danger of defection and apostasy. As the hymn writer Josiah Condor said, The Lord is King who then shall dare resist his will, distrust his care or murmur at his wise decrees, or doubt his royal promises. We are in a different place from those early Christians. And we are certainly in a very different place from those Israelites wandering in the desert. But just like all of them, we are in this journey of faith together. And we need to encourage one another along the way. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. We may hope to be, and do indeed work at being, an encouraging and supporting community. But people can fall through the cracks. But if any of us ever find ourselves in a dark or isolated place where we are uncertain whether God is with us or not, and even if we don't feel confident about sharing that with another person in order to get some support from them, this story, this story of the Israelites can still serve as a reminder that God is actually always near, always providing, always hearing our cries, and always ready to respond. It encourages us to look up. At the same time, we do need to remain open to him, remain attentive to God's word, Remain persistent in our faith and hold fast 
to our confidence in Christ. And we will find, as people of faith in the end always find, the truth inherent in that old biblical name, Jehovah Jiri, the Lord will provide and prevail in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.